Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Running Mead Radio. In this episode, we hear from Professor Carissa Mamathan, a law professor at the University of Ottawa, as she talks about her book entitled Courts Without Cases, The Law and Politics of Advisory Opinions, published by Hart Publishing in 2019. Professor Mathan discusses her book with Mark Mancini, the National Director of the Runnymede Society. We hope you enjoy this episode of Runnymede Radio. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome listeners to this episode of Runnymede Radio. I'm here today with Professor Carissima Mathan, and we're here discussing her new book, or her relatively new book, Courts Without Cases, The Law and Politics of Advisory Opinions. Uh, we're really lucky and grateful to have Professor Mathan here. Welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you. So uh, I, I read this book, and it's an em- it's eminently readable um, on a, on a topic that we don't hear much about. So for those who are unfamiliar, can you explain what the so-called reference power is and why it's important? Absolutely, and thanks very much for having me on. I, I've really enjoyed the podcasts I've listened to, so I'm I'm kind of chuffed that I, I get to be among uh, this pantheon of constitutional and public law scholars that you've managed to attract. Great. (laughs) So um, when we think of courts and what they do, we associate them with a particular function, which is the function of hearing and deciding cases, right? Basically adjudication. And that is really how we have uh, conceived of their role in society uh, for for hundreds of years, but in fact, um, in in the Canadian context, courts uh, do something in addition to deciding cases. And by cases, I mean they hear disputes that are sort of live or sort of um, in uh, are operative between opposed opposing parties, right? That that are adversaries to each other. And they render some kind of judgment that is supposed to settle that dispute. I mean, that's what the classic sort of trial level court does. And then, of course, we have other courts that exist to review um, review those decisions. Uh, and so, it's it's our our understanding of courts is is very much rooted in that adjudicative function. And indeed, for many important reasons, we think that it's it's really critical that that courts be somewhat constrained in their ability to to render judgment. So we don't want courts to just sort of look around for things that 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 the court may feel uh, requires some sort of dispute and essentially initiate a claim, right? We, we want courts to be passive. Uh, we ov- obviously want courts to be impartial. We want them to be confined to legal questions. I mean, courts, you know, we're not going to go to a court with a question of etiquette or, or pure morality. It has to be grounded in the law. So all of these things are extraordinarily important. And uh, we generally think that, that that's, in fact, how we, we justify the great power that courts have. But that's not the only role that courts can play. And in Canada, uh, courts play another role, which is not separate from the law, but it's separate from the idea of sitting in a live case. So for, uh, you know, 140 years, more or less, uh, courts have been able to hear arguments and provide an opinion outside of the live case. And when they do this, their opinion is called advisory. And we also refer to that as a reference. So 
were literally a a government, and this is in the Canadian context restricted to governments or the executive branch of the state, uh, refers, right, literally refers a question or series of questions to a court, generally an appellate court, not not um, exclusively, but let's just say for our purposes to an appellate court, and you have a proceeding, you have submissions, both written and oral, uh, you, ha- you have a back and forth with the court, and the court renders an opinion, and you know it looks very similar to to a case, but it's different in, in important respects. And in the Canadian context, these advisory opinions have, from the very beginning of Confederation, really shaped our law, and in particular, our constitutional law. And so while Canadians may not be familiar with the advisory opinion as such, they likely will have heard of some of the most famous of those advisory opinions, or at least been familiar with the underlying issue that gave rise to those advisory opinions. So, for example, the opinion regarding the secession of Quebec, uh, the opinion uh, around same-sex marriage, the opinion uh, a few years ago regarding the appointment of a judge to the Supreme Court, and wherein the court issued an opinion that actually that judge was not eligible. So we've, we have these extremely momentous um, opinions that have the Supreme Court and other courts have been issuing for well over 100 years. And those opinions have, have inspired much attention, much scholarship. But the phenomenon of the advisory opinion hasn't. And that was a gap that I always found curious. I also find the the actual role of the advisory opinion, and particularly its place in the law, which we can talk about, really curious and interesting and intriguing, but something that had not been uh, greatly explored, certainly in, in legal scholarship. And I decided I wanted to write a book and fill that gap. Well, certainly you're right. It was it's not a studied thing, even though, as you mentioned, so many of the cases that we learn in law school and that we talk about uh, are the product of, of references. So that's one intriguing element of of this of this book is that you highlight that that uh, that phenomenon. So I guess the next sort of the next point I want to explore with you is uh, you you talk in the book about there being a core tension between. Uh, the formal status of references, meaning, you know, they're, they're legally non-binding, um, but at the same time, there's a practical status here as well, that they resemble cases, even though formally they might not present the same sort of uh, adversarial role that cases play. So can you explain this tension and explain a bit about why it matters? Absolutely. So this goes, this draws on some of what I was discussing in response to the first question about the adjudicative role of the courts and the fact that courts, when they issue decisions in cases, they grant judgment, they make orders that compel the parties and other courts to um, do certain things. So in respect to the parties, they can actually, a court can issue an order that you cease from certain activity, that you pay damages. If you're the state, perhaps that you have to release someone from prison. And that's really, that's binding upon the parties. At the same time, depending on where that court sits in the hierarchy. So for example, if it's a Supreme Court, 
And in the course of issuing its decision, it it articulates certain legal principles. Those principles become binding on all lower courts. So when they decide similar issues, they have to follow those uh, those same principles or the rules. And and the the reason that we we find it appropriate for the courts to have that role is in part limited to the limits by that adjudicative process. So when a court issues an advisory opinion. It is simply providing guidance about a legal issue, but because it's in the absence, there is no live case. There are no live parties. There are no live um, uh, persons or, or entities that are that are disputing each other. Uh, the opinion, in a technical legal sense, is not binding. There's no obligation to obey in the same way, and this is something that has been, you know pretty consistently stated and observed and agreed upon by the Supreme Court, certainly since since 1875, since when the, the Supreme Court was actually uh, first uh, first instituted. And the court, in fact, er- early on was, was very insistent that this was just an advisory opinion and it wouldn't, for example, be binding in a future case and on very similar similar terms. But in fact, that is not the way that we think about references, um, I would venture to guess that in many cases, when people talk about very famous references, they don't actually really twig to the fact that they are talking about a reference and not a case. Uh, you know, we have criminal references dealing with the uh, interpretation of Section 7, and then we have live cases, live constitutional cases dealing with the interpretation of Section 7, and we don't draw that distinction. And what's more interesting is that the courts generally don't draw that distinction. Um, and so they have this, there's this duality. They're not binding in the technical sense because they're not cases, but we don't tend to draw that, uh, we don't tend to hew to that characterization in the way that our legal system works. And certainly the courts themselves don't draw a distinction between references and cases when they are thinking about what are the principles or rules that might apply to something like the interpretation of Section 7. And I I think that um, is important because for one, it illustrates something about the way we think about our legal system and the role of the court that seems to expand beyond the traditional view of what gives the court its authority. And I also think it says something important about what law is, right? So what is it that makes something a legal rule? It's more of a a legal theory question, if you will. And it's something that has not really been explored um, in part, I think, because the phenomenon of references has not been explored. And so what I tried to do in the in the book is to go back to the beginning, go back to the source, look at the thinking about the status of the reference, such as it was, and then try and, and uh, through inferential reasoning, try and figure out, well, why is it that that very confident assertion by the court in, you know, 1910 uh, that it's unthinkable that we would ever be bound by our own, by our advisory opinions, that really didn't play out. That's not the way that it that events unfolded at all. And it fairly quickly um, came to uh, came to be treated as something else. So that I think that kind of dovetails into the next question, which is about how political actors, specifically governments, treat references and their interaction with the reference function. So what 
what reasons would compel a government actor to refer a case to a court? Uh, and maybe we can deal with this in the context of uh, sort of a, the, a situation in which there's a lower court proceeding already happening and the government decides to subvert, basically subvert that lower court proceeding by referring to a higher court. Why would a government want to do that? Yeah, so I, I actually call that leapfrogging. So right. there's a, you know, there's a, an ordinary case that's proceeding in the ordinary course and you have a court of first instance that uh, is seized of the matter and is deciding the case and, and uh, a, the, the executive branch uh, decides that it wants to supersede that process, which would then have to go through all the levels of, of the uh, judicial hierarchy to get some final resolution. And, and uh, the government decides that it wants to, in effect, uh, uh, ratchet things up, if you will. So um, that particular context, that's not always uh, the way in which references are, are put to courts, but that particular context or that particular choice, I think, um, arise, can arise from a number of different factors. So one is that it could be an issue where the um, uncertainty over waiting for that lower court to uh, issue the ruling and then have that move through the hierarchy would exert great costs. And a good good example of this is the um, Anti-Inflation Act uh, passed by the Pierre Trudeau government uh, in the 1970s, which uh, really deeply involved the federal government, would have deeply involved the, the federal uh, government in matters of economic regulation in a way that seemed uh, really outside the authority of parliament and was absolutely going to spur uh, immediate, you know, litigation in multiple courts. And the government of the day felt that it was addressing what it thought, thought of as an emergency situation. And it didn't want that uncertainty. And it didn't want, for example, stays or, or injunctions against applications of the, of the act. And so it referred that to uh, the Supreme Court of Canada and, in fact, was able to get a decision in about nine months, which you could never do if you, um, if you were simply to, to go through the ordinary course. I think a, a more recent example is the case of Mark Nadon. So Mark Nadon was appointed to the Supreme Court by Stephen Harper. He was, he was sworn in. Uh, in October of 2013. And the very next day, a Toronto lawyer uh, named Rocco uh, Galati uh, sought judicial review of that decision in the Federal Court of Canada, said that uh, Prime Minister Harper had not uh, adhered to the actual technical requirements of the Supreme Court Act uh, because Mark Nadon had, was a federal court judge taking one of the three Quebec seats on the court. Uh, which that particular kind of appointment had not been made before, but it, it was very much an issue of first impression. And so you have this judicial review. Uh, Mark Nadon said that he would not sit on any cases. The Supreme Court of Canada, in a very you know stark press release, said that uh, they that none of the judges would be speaking to to, to Mark Nadon. It was it was an extremely awkward uh, situation and. In that case, the, the federal government, um, some critics would say rather late in the day, which has to do with the fact that there had been suspicions that this was an issue, whether you could appoint a federal court judge to uh, a Quebec, the Quebec seat on the court. 
but I think quite understandably, the federal government c- could not wait for that challenge, that that application for judicial review to go to the federal court and then the federal court of appeal and then ultimately to the Supreme Court. And it, instead, it referred the issue to the Supreme Court, uh, leapfrogging that lower court decision because you needed to know whether Mark Nadone was eligible or not. I mean, that was clearly a, you know, one could almost say a crisis situation. So those are those are some of the some some reasons that uh, that you you might do it. There are many others which I discuss in the book, which we can get to. But you know, I'll, I'll hopefully that gives us a sense of some of the reasons that that you might do that. Sure, and and then I guess you know. So I've asked about why a government would refer. Now I'd like to ask about why a government would obey. Because uh, and I think you make this point in the book. There's at least one school of thought that. Um, Courts and uh, political actors in Canada are engaged in a dialogue about constitutional, a constant dialogue about constitutional rights. And that dialogue sort of implies an equanimity between government actors and courts in the process of constitution building. This is at least one school of thought. There are others. But so if we take that sort of relationship between courts and government actors, why would a government actor that is sort of conceived of as on, on par with courts obey a ruling that is at least legally non-binding? Yeah, it's a it's a really important question, um, you know, and, and I will uh, take as given the the model of dialogue. I should say that I am on record in print, as they say, um, as disagreeing that dialogue is a helpful way to view the relationship. But that's fine. I know that it still has legs, if you will. Yes. So yes. Uh, let's let's talk about that. Um, so why would they why would they obey? Okay, so there's uh, there's one big reason which I'm going to leave to the end, <laughs> in a way, because not to sort of undercut or preempt my answer. But um, I I, I want to first say that it, it, it you kind of addressed this in your question. You know, you have these equal actors, and I also want to make the point that particularly today, but even going back to 1875, I mean, the actors that initiate references clearly view themselves as having significant authority and significant interpretive expertise. So even though they're they're asking for advice from the court, I think we should note that there are, you know, lots of strategic factors that go on to, into that decision. And it's not as though the government literally doesn't know or doesn't have a very firm opinion on the answer, but it, it the court performs an important settlement function. So that makes it even all the more curious that they don't treat the opinion as a, as quote unquote advice in the normal, you know, um, uh, in, in the common way that we would think of advice. I think that um, there, part of that has to do with the, the entity from which they've sought the answer, which is, which is the court, which has authority, uh, that you are, you want to know what the court thinks. And the, the implication sort of from a public perception point of view is that you care about the answer and you don't just care about the answer in a strategic sense, uh, or, you know, something that you can, uh, accept, adopt, or disregard at will, which you could do with advice in an ordinary sense, you care about the answer and you you respect the answer. So there's, I think, uh, uh, the risk that the government would be seen as really having gamed the process if it 
went to the trouble of framing the question, putting it to the court, going through a, the entire argument, um, uh, submission and, and advocacy process that you do in a reference, and then deciding whether or not they think that the answer is worth following. I think that would do some damage to the actor. I think that a second um, reason that you that you would you could take that view is that you actually you truly have respect for the court as an institution, and you think that what the court says is just worthy of that level of regard and compliance. A third um, uh, consideration would be, in effect, strategic in that you have an interest in ensuring the continued authority of the court, because if you decide that you don't need to always pay attention to the court's answer, even if it's given in a reference, that means that your rivals, your jurisdictional rivals, your legal rivals, might also decide to do that, to do that, and then you lose the court as a, a final, as as an an institution that can give that kind of final settlement, and that would be uh, potentially very very serious in terms of just the overall stability of the legal order. So those are you know a number of considerations, but I think that you know now I'm going to get to the the main reason or the the probably the most important reason is that it's become very clear, and I show this at various points in the book, that the court is going to regard that decision as not merely advice that it can disregard next week, right? So that decision, that opinion, I should say, not a decision, that opinion joins the rest of the opinions and decisions of the court that make up the the body of precedent, that it enjoys the power of stare decisis, that the court itself, let's say you're talking about the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is not just going to disregard that opinion. And so if you, you know, create by disregarding that opinion, a situation in which there would then be some kind of live case, you'll lose, you'll lose, you'll know that, in fact, the court has already given a very clear sense of what its view of the law is. And and we see this um, while the court does sometimes depart from prior opinions or prior decisions and opinions. It doesn't do it any more for references than for cases. Like there's no distinction in how the court chooses to disregard or, or perhaps amend its or, or depart from its prior reasoning. So it just wouldn't make sense. Like it, it would be a true waste of time and resources for you to pursue a reference, get the opinion, and then decide based on the content of that reference, of that opinion, whether it's worth it to follow it or not. So, and that sort of goes to the practical effect of uh, the practical status of references as, as being sort of taken by the actors to be binding, even if formally they aren't. Um, so that's very interesting. So with the last third here of the of the podcast, I'd like to just um, outline or put to you some challenges that the reference function has experienced in the past or and continues to experience today. So the first one, um, I think, is sort of the separation of powers challenge to the reference function. So you note in the book, other countries, notably the United States, um, resiled from sort of an advisory function for the courts. And before the sort of the reference re-references case, um, there, there were important challenges set out to the propriety of references. And I think a great challenge that you know in the book was Edward Blake sort of calling the courts Delphic oracles. I thought that was, was, was very good. 
So, and we talk about the separation of powers in Canada as being uh, not as strong as in the United States, but at least nominally, we're still committed to this notion of the separation of powers. So how do we square the reference power with this idea of a separation of powers, even if it's not as strong as the one in the United States? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Then there isn't necessarily a neat and tidy answer. Right. I think that um, it's and I talk about this in the book. I mean, the, the fact is that Canada didn't create the reference function out of whole cloth. It has been a part of British constitutional tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that has to do with the specific way that the British legal tradition evolved and the role of the sovereign and the sovereign's council and, and actually how the courts evolved from that. And that um, it was much more common for, for, for some, for a period of time, really until the reign of the Stuarts, uh, for the courts to be giving um, that kind of that kind of advice, and it really comes out of the 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 uh, the notion of the king's of the king's council. Now, in fact, that power uh, was was abused, and the the reference function domestically kind of fell into disuse um, because it was seen as a way for the sovereign to to cement his or her power. But um, the Privy Council, which was created as a, as a court in 1833, sort of retained that function in its, specifically in relation to colonies, but on, in very, very, uh, um, a very narrow set of circumstances in domestic context, which it still does. The interesting thing is that when the Supreme Court of Canada Act was being uh, uh, formulated and sort of strategized uh, shortly after Confederation, the, the the reference function was was put in there and it was primarily I think done as a way to cement the the federal government's authority so it it, it became imbued also with um, the fact that in Canada you had this federal system that 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 brought along its its own challenges uh, and that that caused some consternation in the confederation debates and I, I go through some of that some of that in the book and I think in a way that what happened in the Canadian context is that it was put into the Supreme Court Act and the challenges to it were not as much from a separation of powers context, but from a federalism context. And so the, the, the parties, the, the actors that were really upset about the reference function for the Supreme Court of Canada were the provinces because the reference function was exclusive to the federal cabinet. And the reference function was not limited to questions of federal law, but included, quote unquote, any question, including questions of provincial law. And that was seen as importing into the, into the Supreme Court an imbalance among the federal and provincial governments. And so what happened, and Edward Blake was was the, the person that really worked to do this, is that in relatively short order, uh, the Supreme Court Act was amended so that while the provinces couldn't directly appeal to the Supreme Court, if if they would have an automatic right of appeal from provincial references. Notwithstanding that, that went up to the, the provinces challenged a particular um, federal reference, and that went up to the Supreme Court and then the Privy, the, the Privy Council in the reference re-references, as you say, and essentially what the Privy Council said is this is something that courts have done. It is not inconsistent with the role of, in this case, a court of general appeal to do this function too. 
It can be an adjunct function. And there was also a little bit of um, sort of almost snark, if you will, in the in the Privy Council because it said, well, it's very curious to us that the provinces are are challenging this function so so vociferously when they have for decades, in fact, been referring questions to their own provincial courts of appeal. So, you know, and they actually say it would be very strange if if we were to all of a sudden think that references are this uh, are this um, illegitimate illegitimate function. Oh, right. So, yes. uh, so you know, that's sort of one way that we we can sort of not entirely satisfactorily, but somewhat square that square that circle. Okay. So the second sort of challenge I want to put to you is this concept, which I found very interesting in the book that you mentioned with regards to the same-sex marriage reference, um, this concept of democratic debilitation. So this idea, I guess, I suppose the idea is that um, courts can, or, or political actors can avoid having to deal with difficult issues having constitutional dimensions if they merely refer the matter to a court and essentially pawn off the responsibility onto a court through the reference function. Do you think that um, this is a, a dangerous tendency? Is this something that we should be worried about with regards to the reference function? Is it something that um, has characterized the use of the reference function in Canadian history? I, I think it's something that we should always be on the lookout for. I don't, I would not say that it's characterized the reference function uh, in, in large respect, that sort of cautionary note that I, that I flag. Um, and this again relates to the fact that over its history, the preponderance of reference cases have involved federal provincial disputes. Right. So we need to we need to also bear that in mind, that it's not necessarily a case, for example, involving individual rights where there's a much clearer alternate forum for debate, namely the legislature of whichever jurisdiction might be thinking about doing something that might conceivably that might conceivably uh, impact on in citizens rights. Um, so that, I think, has shaped that to a to a certain extent that. This was, and I go through this in the book, in fact, one of the references were seen as a way to minimize the, uh, the, the controversy over the power of disallowance, federal disallowance, uh, which, as you can imagine, was uh, you know, radioactive in the early days of Confederation. And again, Edward Blake thought, uh, you know, before the federal government would take that dramatic step of disallowance, it should actually refer the provincial law that it was concerned about to the Supreme Court and should should sort of, in, in essence, get that separate institutional buy-in. It's like almost, so a way to, a precondition, if you will. References from the very beginning were really part of the way that federalism worked in Canada, if you will. Now, that being said, uh, it is possible for references to be pursued for what seem to be purely political ends. And this might be where the particular question that's being advanced is doesn't doesn't seem to be one that needs a lot of 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 guidance where the law is relatively clear. You can see that sometimes if you have multiple references on the same issue in a variety of jurisdictions, arguably we can see that with the current carbon tax reference. Uh, you know, there are different, there are different readings on that where 
it seems that it's it's just it's being used to make some sort of political statement. The what the actors need to be mindful of, and this is something that also draws on the separation of powers argument, is that one of the ways that the court has um, asserted its independence, which is a separation of powers issue, is that it has developed quite. Um, quite irrespective of the language of the Supreme Court Act, it has said, we have a discretion and authority to refuse to answer a question if we feel it's, you know, hypothetical, vague, or if it would be inappropriate to answer that question. And indeed, that's what it did in the same-sex marriage reference with respect to the question on the charter compatibility of of um, the common law definition of marriage that really was at the heart of the issue. But for a bunch of reasons, that question was sort of added into the reference sort of as an afterthought. And the court didn't, didn't like that clearly and didn't feel that the way that the question had arrived before it was one where it would be a good idea to answer it. So, you know, there, there are some, there are some, uh, some mitigating factors uh, and mm. some some red zones, you know, some danger zones that parties need to need to think about before they really try and game the system with respect to references. Great. Okay. Um, the final question I have for you is just about, um, the, and you sort of got into this with just disability restrictions. I wanted to just bring up to you this this amazing case that you you talk about in the book, the coffin, the coffin case, um, which was a case involving. Uh, a man who was, uh, you know, wrongly convicted. He appealed. Uh, he, he tried to get leave to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, that that uh, leave application was was turned down. But then the cabinet submitted a reference question asking the following. And I just it's interesting for our listeners to hear this. I think so. It, the, the question goes like this: If the application made by Wilbur Coffin for leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada have been granted on any of the grounds alleged on the said application, what disposition of the appeal would now be made by the court? And I just found this amazing because it's so hypothetical. Um, it's it's a- asking the court, I think you say this, to engage in sort of counterfactual reasoning. Um, are these sorts of questions that skirt justiciability restrictions uh, dangerous in any sense, or can the courts manage this through declining to answer que- certain questions in particular cases? Uh, so I think that that is a, you know, that's a case in which neither the government nor the court acquitted itself particularly well. Um, you know, there's a whole sort of backstory around uh, the very negative reaction to the to the original refusal to grant leave to appeal, which was actually done by um, Justice Abbott, who had been appointed. I think it was the last appointment straight from from cabinet, and and it was really seen as as a, a sign of the court's lack of competence, you know, basic competence in 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 criminal criminal appeal. So, I don't um, I, I don't think that the court would approach it in the same in the same way today. I do think that that is a, a, a somewhat disreputable use of the reference function, and I have some confidence that we would in fact get uh, probably get a refusal to answer that question because particularly in the case it came so soon as well after the, the refusal to grant leave like that I just I feel that that is that is not a uh, a legitimate use of the reference 
function. And I, I am fairly confident that, that it would not be uh, addressed at all the same way today. Okay. Okay. So it's a bit of an outlier then. I think so. And yeah. um, one of the interesting things about to think about references, because it, they, they have really tracked the evolution of the court and right. you see the development of the court. And I argue that, you know, the court had this additional function. I think that it gave it a particular kind of confidence, if you will, or, or a, a, an, a, a sense of its, of its particular place in the constitutional order. And you know, it's very hard to, to draw strict causal connections, but I, Think that it was part of the the part of the story as to why in the post charter era, the post Constitution Act nineteen eighty two era, the court you know was comfortable with a much more assertive role, and we see that of course right from the patriation reference, which is also an incredibly important important moment uh, for the right. for the advisory function. Right. Well, um, that's those are all the questions I have. Uh, for you today, Professor Mathen. Um, was there anything else you wanted to note about your work or the or the uh, reference function in general before we conclude? Well, I just wanted to say we seem to be living in a golden age of references. Yes, <laughs> we usually, yes. You know, we tend to have one every five years, and in the last five years, we've had. Uh, I don't know, I think almost eight or 10 really important ones. So I it's it's really been, um, it's been fun. It's, it's, it was a bit hair raising for me, because I was seeing things change. As I was putting, for example, the finishing touches on the book, and things have continued to change. So it's always this sort of, uh, it's always this Hobbesian sort of, uh, uh, you know, you sort of, when do I when is it actually a good time to, to put to push uh, send on on a manuscript like this, but um, you know, it's, I think, for example, the, the carbon tax reference, which is now going to be heard by the Supreme Court of Canada in March, um, is going to be a really interesting moment, uh, for the, for the Supreme Court and, you know, for, for all of, for the federal and provincial governments. I, I'm really looking forward to, to, to watching that. It will be a very interesting time indeed. Um, but for now, uh, I'd like to just take the opportunity to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak to us on Running Mead Radio today. The book, again, is uh, Courts Without Cases, The Law and Politics of Advisory Opinions by Professor Carissa Mamathan. And uh, I really recommend the book to all of our listeners. Uh, and perhaps we'll have you on again the podcast, Professor Mathan, because uh, you do have a new book coming out with Michael Claxton. Um, in uh, June, correct? That's right. So this is, it's called The 10th Justice, uh, Mark Nadon, Judicial Appointments and the Supreme Court Act Reference, which we talked about a little bit today. And that's, it's just putting that very strange saga, believe it or not, six years ago now, uh, into some context. This, one of the strangest moments on the court when it actually advised that one of its members wasn't a judge at all, wasn't actually a judge of the court at all. It's, it's a, it's a bizarre and, but also very important uh, reference uh, for the, for the, the status of the Supreme court itself. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, for now, again, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. You're welcome. It's my very great pleasure.
Thank you for listening to Runnymede Radio. To learn more about the Runnymede Society, visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.